This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, in Silver Lake, and West Los Angeles. It was created by our great friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, to create a facility that treats alcoholics and drug addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades of experience in treating addiction, alcoholism, and co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure your detox is a comfortable one, or at least as comfortable as they can provide, and they have amenities you wouldn't believe. The sweat lodge, the sound bath meditation, surfing, fucking equine therapy. Sounds like the place to go. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend Going to Aloe. The following ad contains nicotine and is intended for listeners ages 21 and older. Did you not get a stimulus check but want one, or did you get a check and want another one? Daddy's Vapor has the solution. They have a $1,400 vape stimulus sweepstakes. Visit daddysvapor.com slash giveaway to enter and for sweepstakes rules and details. Daddy's Vapor distributes premium e-liquids like Twist e-liquids, which is known for its mouth-watering flavors, such as its best-selling lemonade, sweet treats, and dessert flavors. All flavors are available with or without nicotine for those who are looking to make the switch from combustible cigarettes to vapes. Learn more about e-liquids and enter for a chance to win $1,400 at daddysvapor.com giveaway. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Clean Cause. Clean Cause is our favorite sparkling yerba mate beverage. It tastes absolutely amazing and has 160 milligrams of organic caffeine to help us do all of the ridiculously hard work we do to produce Dopey. But the best thing is 50% of their profits empower individuals recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. Those profits fund sober living scholarships, and to date, they've granted 2,000 scholarships representing a million dollars. But they aren't stopping there. So drink a better caffeine and go to cleancause.com and use the code DOPEY15 for 15% off your next purchase. That's cleancause.com and use the code DOPEY15 for 15% off your next purchase of the delicious 
sparkling yerba mate beverage. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. Somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is so widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to our listeners, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for 50 bucks off your device. Do it for someone that cares. Let us help you stay off the sauce. All right, we have a new ad. Very exciting. This episode is also brought to you by a brand new podcast called Adult Child, which is a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. The show is hosted by Andrea, a recovering alcoholic and self-proclaimed former shit show. At nine years sober and nine years of toxic romantic relationships, Andrea hit an emotional bottom that was even more painful than when she got sober, where she finally came to terms with the true impact her childhood had on her and embarked on her adult child healing journey. Each episode explores a different facet of being an adult child of an alcoholic or dysfunctional family, from codependency to toxic shame to complex post-traumatic stress disorder. She shares her own filterless experience and then has conversations with guests, authors, experts, friends, fellow adult children. It's raw, it's vulnerable, it's funny, and incredibly applicable to the Dopey Nation. So go check it out now, adult child. And finally... This episode of Dopey is supported by you guys, the Dopey Nation, through the power of the Dopey Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. We've put a ton of work into the Dopey Patreon page. There's videos, there's songs, there's interviews, there's famous people, there's Dopey Nation people, and it is a way uh, for Dopey to be more self-supporting. So if you get something out of Dopey, uh, please throw a few bucks at the Patreon. It means everything to me, and I appreciate it. So it's patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Thank you. There's tons of fucking gear at the store. Go to dopeypodcast.com. I have all these hats. I have black and white Dopey hats. I have black and white Oive hats. I have like five blue and red Dopey hats left and maybe three blue and orange. So if you're a Knicks fan or a Mets fan or a Gators fan or a Giants fan, just buy a fucking hat because they're those colors. And you're a Dopey fan, buy a hat. Anyway, I also have stickers. I have amazing stickers. Amazing stickers. Venmo me if you want some. Enough with the ads. If you don't want stickers, don't Venmo me. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to another episode of Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I'm back again with my very good friend, 
dopey uh, heretic, but now return to the fold, the great Ray Brown. It's a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. The sun is shining. I got on a bicycle coming here. You biked over? And then I didn't, I'm so fat, I didn't feel comfortable, and I put it back in the rack. Back in the rack. Was yeah. it your fatness that made you uncomfortable? Yeah, I felt like I was going to tip over. Or the traffic? No, there's no traffic. There's bike lanes. And you thought it would be less grinding on your hips and gears to be I, on the bike. I, yeah, I knew I wasn't going to fall over walking. Interesting. Are you still on the SSRI inhibitor? No, I haven't. I've been off that for a year. Because we bl- we blamed the weight gain on the I SSRI know. inhibitor. <laughs> so now we're going to blame the weight gain on no exercise. Yeah. Too much forbidden chocolate. I'm not eating bad. I'm eating very okay. little. I'm just French not fries, Taco Bell. No, I don't eat any pizza. of those. I haven't eaten any of that stuff. I'm eating like tofu and brown rice. You send me a picture of every fifth meal I, you eat. I sent you a picture. <laughs> you don't, picture, yeah. you don't send the bad ones. And you're like, why do you keep sending me pictures of your meal? Because like, you keep saying I eat ice cream and pizza. Well, I am on a crazy regimen. I'm dropping weight like, a, like I'm going to have to start gaining weight in a second. How much have you lost? I have no idea. Like 30 pounds? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I, I don't have a scale. Um, but... Are you gonna? Are you? Do we need to set up the Dopey Fitness Challenge? Last uh, summer we were very close to setting up the Dopey. No, Fitness I'm gonna challenge. start. I'm gonna start swimming again soon. And you're all so that full stuff. of shit. I'm not. Yeah. When are you gonna? This you gonna, happened over the winter. I was just laying in bed. It happened last winter. Well, whatever this winter That's was. Two 20, winters. Yeah. No, it was two winters. It happened. No, you're right. I have it on my. I have my scale on my phone, so it's, I know it started at the end of winter of 2020. This started. Yeah. Now, where are you going to swim at? The Y on your block? Uh, I'm, I think I might join the Y again, and I can go to the beach, to Rockaway and Connecticut. This is, this is all bullshit. What are you going to do? It's because I'm like, I used to have a very active job where I was working like a dog all day. And an active, you were a king of the nightlife. And I was out every night. You were king of nightlife. I was king of nightlife. <laughs> Ray, if you guys are interested in some of Ray's music, you should check out the record. Ray Brown, King of Nightlife, available on Bandcamp, it's, SoundCloud. But the king, the king of nightlife the, in that song is my friend in Dublin. Uh, um, Whatever his I mean, name is. I can't is. remember his name. That fucking guy. Um, so weight, weight gain is on your mind. Weight loss is on my mind. Well, I'm going to talk about something that I find to be annoying and at the same time enriching. Okay? Okay. It's a concept that I'm not particularly comfortable with, and I don't know why that is, but why do... I mean, this, and I apologize to the Dopey Nation that this is what the show has become. I apologize yeah, to Yeah, when you. did this turn? Take I, this turn. I don't oh, the know. bicycle. I apo- yeah, it's your own fault. You thought you were too fat. You're going to topple off the bike. Hard work pays off. It took me 46 and a half years to finally realize it, and it annoys me. That like when I don't eat, I get skinny. That annoys me. That I can't eat cookies and be skinny. That I that when I do spiritual work, I'm better. When I work harder, I have more money. These things bother me because I wanted all the, the results. The truth of it. Well, no, I wanted the results without putting in the work. Oh yeah, oh yeah. My friend Devin wrote a novel, and I was in the beginning of my drug addiction, and I said, just put in one line. I want your book to end with the phrase, it was the least I could do, which is like how I wanted to live my whole life, which is like, it was the least I could do. And did he put that in? It was the last line of his book, but it hasn't gotten published. But I wanted my life philosophy 
to be, it was the least I could do. And now all of a sudden I'm killing myself in every department. And the interesting thing is that, like they say, hard work actually pays off. Yeah. Well, for, for every action, there's, you know, another action. I find that annoying, too. What do you think it means that I'm finally embracing this fact and that it irritates me? Um, I don't know. Maybe a stoner, hippie outlook. I think it's because I'm, I'm naturally lazy. And now, all of a sudden, I'm like the biggest go-getter in the world. Well, years ago, this is a similar thing. I made a conscious decision to say yes to everything that was offered. Say yes to the dress? Say yes. Oh, I don't know about that. But That's like a TV show. Like West Virginia. Like, look at that. Like, do you want to come to West Virginia? Uh, that, the answer would you, should be no. Why do I want to do that? But, like, look how that changed my life. I knew that you could not resist something that whacked out as West Virginia. Yeah, I love that. The more whack, I've said no to like a gig once. Somebody asked me to play a gig, and I said, sure. And then I found out the club was really fucked up and did shitty things to the patrons and the artists. And I said, no, I changed my mind. But I will always say yes. Do you want to do this? You want to, you know, just if you say yes, it usually has good results. Well, I was thinking Unless about it's that. like, do you want to do heroin? <laughs> right. Yeah, and, but I bet you it did start that way, that you were saying yes to all sorts of debauched things. Yeah. And I've made a commitment that I'm not going to dip into my incredibly joyful bag of sexualizing you, because you can't, Thank ha- you. You can't handle it anymore. I can handle Your it. Your little minions in the dopey <laughs> nation can't handle it. We are going on a respite from all the things Thank that you. I like to Thank say. Thank God. Well, the show is going to be worse for it, so I hope you're happy. Yeah, I'm talking about hard work paying off instead of you 69 and cops. Wait. That's, well, I'm just saying, <laughs> I, I feel like it's sad. That's a sad development. Say yes. Anyway, so I'm going to say that I feel good about that, and the one thing that I don't feel good about is I always want more. Always, right? Yeah. I always want more. And I was having a conversation with my sponsor about it, about like the never ending wanting, you know, or if it's like dopey being bigger or more money or more happiness or more whatever. Life is suffering. Suffering is caused by desire. Exactly. I forgot about Buddhist Brown over here. Um, And my sponsor dropped this on me. He quoted a page in the big book. I believe it was 404. Actually, I have no idea what page it is, but he was talking about acceptance. And I never even considered acceptance, like, as a thing. Yeah. Like, accepting things the way they are. And for things you can't change. Acceptance in general. And when he... It was the first time I was ever susceptible to hearing the phrase acceptance. And it's really helped me since then that I've been thinking about things that I want or things that aren't going the way I want them to. And I'm like, acceptance, acceptance, acceptance. And all of a sudden, I'm accepting them. And then we started talking about money, okay? And um, and he starts telling me about all of his investments. Oh, yeah, you told me about <clears> that. And, it's like um, envy. Well, he's talking about his, his crypto investments, his real estate investments, his businesses, his things. And, well, and The thing with that stuff is, it's been proven that after a certain amount of money, you don't become any happier or fulfilled. And it's like if you have enough money to pay the electric bill and the rent and live and buy food, you don't any happier after that. Right. But I, of course, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. If you, if you have less than that, <clears throat> you're 
less happy. I'm jealous, and I'm thinking, how, how come he's better than me? And how can I get more? And then I found myself resenting him, okay? So the question, whenever I tell my sponsor, right? Yeah. Like, Ray's pissing me off. He says, pray for Ray. What, is, what am I doing you to piss you make off? me crazy. <laughs> but if I said to the sponsor, I resent you because you're talking about how much money yeah. you have, or, and all he was doing was trying to help me understand how to invest money. And I, and I, oh, he wasn't bragging. No, he, he was guiding you. He was trying to guide me. I, took I it tried as to guide you. That's why I resent you. When did you guide me? I told you to set up a Roth IRA. I did. Oh, good. Um, anyway, so do you think if you go to your sponsor and say, I realized I resent you because I was envious of this, he's going to say, I think you should start praying for me? That would be convoluted. Because then it's like... But very cool, yeah. Do you think that... that I mean, that's Dopey Nation. I mean, I had, ever, that, I had that with my sponsor. Like, did you tell your sponsor no, you resented him? No. You didn't tell I just your sponsor fired, anything. I fired him. You fired him. <laughs> you resent, how about Richard? How about poor Richard? You've had a resentment against this poor man for I, so long, and he wasn't even on your... You're writing about fearing snakes in the bathtub I, I, instead of your resentment of Richard. I don't have a resentment. This is my neighbor who died yesterday. I'm sorry. I, sorry for your I loss. I don't have a resentment. It was I viewed it from afar. Okay, let's just break it down for a second. Forget resentment. Maybe that's not the right word. You said to me, you are in touch with this man for 30 years until one day he said to you, you don't do anything right. At which point, you left the apartment, yes. closed the door, never spoke to him again. Yes. And he talks to your husband and says, when will Stephen, which is Ray's real name, when will Stephen talk to me again? And Ray's husband says, never. Now, if you don't call that a resentment, I don't think you know what resentments are. I, 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 I walked out of his apartment and I never, he never bothered me again. You were free. I was free of it. And I heard stories about what was going on. And I'm like, I'm, that was the best decision I ever made. I'm so glad I'm not part of this. Okay, so that's interesting. But let me ask you this. You did resent your sponsor. If you ever went to your sponsor, and this is not about you. This is about a question about sponsorship or whatever. If my sponsee came to me and said, I resent you for such and such, I would absolutely tell him to pray for me. I resented my sponsor after I fired him. It took me a few days. I re I've been praying for your sponsor every day. Really? No, but I should because I resent him. <laughs> um, do you think that that's guidance that a sponsor should give a sponsee to pray for me? Pray for me. I, you know, I've never heard anybody say anything like this. I'm, I'm going to research it a little to see, like, resentment and, like, that. That relationship between sponsor and sponsee—it's a weird one because you're not friends. You're sometimes you don't even know each other. Well, I have a nice relationship with my sponsee, and um, and now he's doing his fourth step, and I can find—I just said go write your resentments, go do it, and I don't need to worry about it until he comes back to me with the shit, you know. And um, and I'm still in my fifth step. I'm still in my fears and my sex. And I should pray for my I, my... I don't really resent my sponsor. I think it's just my own jealousy, you know? You know, that fear I had of a rattlesnake coming out of my bathtub drain? I looked at my bathtub drain, and there's, like, a piece of metal... That resembles a, a snake. No, a piece of metal that no snake could get through, and I don't have that fear anymore. 
Well, let's let's go down the list of some of your more no, your more not. ludicrous that's fears. Not. Were you scared of the dark? You were scared of I'm biting not... into a hard section of your what? sandwich. What are you? What, what? What? You were scared there might be some metal in your matzo ball soup. No, is that from work? No. What I mean, I've I had... have I've had glass in. I I ordered a beer and I'm drinking it. And the cup is filled with broken glass. That should be a free beer. They weren't very apologetic about it. That's fucked up because if you swallow the glass, it could cut up your throat. Oh, I know. Your stomach, everything. Yeah. Now, I, I just get a kick out of this. What were your when? Because the the rattlesnake in the tub. I resent you for that fear. Uh, what other? Well, you have to understand where I grew up. That we had snakes, poisonous snakes, coming into the house like all the time. Coming up through the tub. We had a moccasin. You live on fucking 14th Street. There's no rattlesnake coming up in the well, tub. Well, there was a giant snake in the apartment one time that came in from next door. It came up through the fire what escape. What kind of snake? A boa constrictor. <laughs> <laughs> and a friend of mine on 2nd Street in the East Village who was a junkie woke up with a fucking snake curled up on his chest. Uh, you okay? So what? What's okay? These, so you know, people for my keep, money, people keep these cobras and rattlesnakes in their apartments as pets. For my money, uh, the rattlesnake coming up through the tub was the most outlandish and worst fear I've ever heard on a fear thing. But I remember you had other ones. What was? Give me some more. I can't remember. It was like the vortex, spiraling blackness. You had some weird. Oh, the the void, the empty space void, floating your soul, floating, just floating out into space. I think you had some fear of like the dark or getting hit by a car when you cross the street. I've been having a, you know, ever since I went to Dublin, where the traffic goes backwards, I've had a fear I was going to get hit. Now I have it here. My friend, my friend got hit by a car. We were bartenders. Me and my friend were bartenders on uh, Irving Place between, uh, you know, where Irving Plaza is? Yeah, yeah, Right over there. And, um... Man, that was a fucking weird a, job. A friend of mine got hit by a car, and she said, just because the light is red, you think the cars are going to stop, but that's not always true. And ever since then, I've always looked. When the light is red, I look to make sure they're stopped. I always cross. I don't think about it. But we, we were bartenders in this bar on Irving Place, and it was me and my friend Devin, and we like had taken a bartending course. Yeah. And we'd have to like memorize the drinks. Grasshopper. And, yeah, and like the blue <laughs> whale. Yeah. Vodka blue, drinks are sour so and stupid. orange, right? To me, as an alcoholic, drinks are just so stupid. But we had this job. It was by NYU, and nobody would come in, and we would make very little money. But it was cool. We would play whatever music we wanted. Yeah. And, and then the bartender's brother, or no, the bar owner's brother showed up one night, and he's like, I need all the money from the register. Whoa. And Devin gave him the I was like, Devin, like what? I need all the money from I was the like, register. Devin, what are you doing? <laughs> and he gave the brother all the money from the register, and the brother went out and bought Coke. Whoa. And then did all the Coke in the bar. <laughs> and I was like, Devin, why did you give him the money? It was like, he was like, it's the, it's the owner's brother. And I was like, dude, he bought all the, spent all the money on Coke. And the owner was pissed, but he didn't fire us. And I think the next week, Devin went out to pick up our dinner someplace, and he got hit by a cab, broke his wrist, and I think he sued the cab company and got thirteen grand. Oh, That's oh, I haven't told you the the trip I'm planning. Uh, here we go. Um, Kratom uh, Farm, fucking, where are you going? Well, maybe I'll go to the Kratom Farm. Um, I'm Mexico. Amtrak is having a sale. Oh. All the Northeast is nineteen dollars. You can go from Boston to DC for nineteen. So I'm going to do a day trip to DC. But um, 
I'm going to get the either the 15-day or the 30-day pass, unlimited pass, or that's actually not unlimited, and go. I'm going to New Orleans, then Texas. You're going to sit Air- on a train for like it's a gonna week? It's going to be amazing. That's what you're going to do? And then I'm going to stay with my friend in Joshua Tree, and then I'm going to stay with my niece in San Francisco and then come back across. I'm very excited. Did you so buy like, the ticket? This is what you do. You fantasize about travel. I know. I've been travel. fantasizing. That, and now I'm like, I have the vaccine. Listen, I can do this. I, I, I say go with my blessing. You can watch the YouTube videos on the way. And you never know I what love, kind of train shenanigans yeah, you might get I into. I love riding the train. So when are you going on this trip? Uh, soon after April 19th. So early May, late April, early May. So soon. Very soon. So yeah. Dopey Nation, look for a traveling Ray Brown yeah. on the road. Are you um, gonna bring your guitar? No. You should bring your guitar. Oh. And you should bring a cowboy hat. <laughs> and you can like I'm do gonna a train bring songs. a toothbrush and my phone. That's it. That's it. No, a backpack. Probably your laptop, not. definitely. What are you gonna do on that fucking train? I have my phone with me. That's enough. Yeah. So this trip can get you out of the doldrums of your depression. Because we haven't talked about your depression nearly enough. I'm not sure I'm depressed. But, yeah, I'm very excited about it. And I, How are you not? You had a, a bowl of broken oatmeal in your kitchen <laughs> on the floor for a week. You shaved your mustache. You, there's that depression. Proves, that proves it right there. I think so. Well, you don't think you're depressed? I Maybe. I don't know. But this is this is You might be... Up. The most out of touch with your feelings person I've ever met. Well, I've lived with it my whole life, and I've, I've survived it. You've survived it. But I think the trip sounds like a good deal. You need an adventure. Yeah. So you're excited. Yeah. Are you excited that we have this? This On the scale of dopey guests, this dopey guest is pretty big time. This is crazy. But Dog the Bounty Hunter is a gigantic dopey guest. That's a big franchise. He's a big get. A big get. Yeah, how'd you get him? Through a friend. I had a friend who actually produced his show. And um, and this guy, this friend of mine, was one of the kindest people to me I've ever known. And I didn't even notice that he was kind to me. I, I only realized that he was kind to me in my sobriety, which is like, he was a guy, he was like the coolest guy I ever met. But you met him through 12-step program? No, 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 no. I met him when I was a kid uh, working as a, production assistant and he was a cameraman and a director of photography i I spaced out and he would take me um we did gigs together and he was always cool he was a guitar player and a bass player from westchester was he one of those people that like put up with you when you were like on heroin and working on the show yeah he was one of them that's a miracle that you me and him like traveled the country we went to austin we went to panama city i've heard these stories we went to lake havasu and um, the most fu- the guy's name is Alan Deutsch. And the most fucked up thing was that I had my little TV show and Alan thought I was going to be somebody. And he was like, let's make a documentary about wetlands together, this club. And um, I was like, great. And I was all fucked up on heroin. Totally. And did he go, Dave, are you high? You can't work like this? No. In fact, he was in a band in the 90s where the lead singer was a heroin addict. And the lead singer wound up overdosing and dying. Alan just figured he could work with me, whatever. Oh. And um, I wound up like, you know, not showing up for work and blah blah blah. And Alan wound up selling all the footage to another guy we worked with that the actually wetlands. made the documentary on wetlands with the footage we had shot. Oh, is it available? Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, you should I, check I used it to out. go to wetlands. 
Alan then, as I was in and out of recovery in the early days, him and his band, and, and him and his friends, basically, would jam at Ultrasound on, on 29th Street, yeah. and they would invite me every time. And we would sit in the stairwell at, at, at Ultrasound and smoke a shitload of weed, and we would jam, and he was just always kind to me. And I actually went to Alan and his girlfriend's house on the 9-11 story day after I had come back from copping and everything. And, um, and then years later, Alan made The Last Jewish Waiter. He shot, oh, he he? shot all oh. the footage of me in the white buttoned-up shirt in yeah. the, la- the first episode. Alan shot that. Alan brought it to the people who did Anthony Bourdain. Alan was like my patron saint. And Alan uh, produced Dog the Bounty Hunter. And Alan also hired Todd to work on Dog the That's Bounty Hunter. That's why Last Jewish Waiter was so professional. Well, the first one Alan did, and then the next one two other guys did. Um, but Alan gave uh, hooked us up with Dog the Bounty Hunter. More importantly, cool. do, Alan is is uh, and Alan was single his whole life. Yeah, and he married this lady who owns a hotel in Beverly Hills, and now Alan's a hotel owner in Beverly Hills. Is he like my age? Yeah, he's your age, and he's got two little kids. He's just he's like my hero. Anyway, maybe you should come on the show sometime, but he would never want to do it. But this is Dog the Bounty Hunter. Alan Deutsch is one thing. He brought us Dog the Bounty Hunter. Uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter uh, is now amazing guest. He is a TV superstar, a bounty hunter, uh, an ex-motorcycle club member. And uh, I love your show, man, and I love what you do. Uh, his name is Dwayne Lee Chapman, but he's better known as Dog the Bounty Hunter. Welcome to Dopey, sir. Thank you, sir, Dave. Aloha. My pleasure to be here. How are you? I'm good. It's such a. It blows my mind to have you on the show. I, I think that what you do is incredible. I've been watching your show, and as crazy as it is, your show is so high octane. But somehow, I find it very relaxing. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, not really, but kinda. I think maybe it's because I don't have to be hunted by you that it's relaxing for me to watch you. <laughs> oh, good. I've heard your show's my guilty pleasure. Yes. A lot. But, but uh, no, well, thank you for the compliment very much. No, I think what you do is incredible. And your story is just out of hand insane. But it's like um, your spiritual side kind of illustrates the nature of your story. And uh, I know you came up in Colorado and you wound up uh, joining the devil's disciples. And I, I heard you on an interview talking about. Uh, your love of Batman and James Bond and adventure types. Did that lead you to motorcycle clubs or what was it? Well, uh, no, we, I was very young, 13 and we got bust. Uh, yeah, I'm half Apache. And so, uh, we got the Latinos and I got bust to white schools and, uh, the white boys, you know, called me San the n-word and prairie the n-word right wagon burner and blah 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 and uh i started to have to fight to stay survive and i noticed the toughest of all the white guys were the bikers and so i thought you know what at 13 i thought i'm gonna hang around these guys because nobody beats them up so that's how i i started uh, my affiliation with the outlaw motorcycle clubs how did you happen on to the Devil's Disciples in particular? Well, they had seen uh, the dis- there's all uh, there's what they call one percenters, okay? 
and that's outlaw clubs. And there's a lot of outlaw clubs, but the devil's disciples had a code of uh, ethics. There were 16 rules that you couldn't break. For instance, you couldn't sleep with a brother's wife and uh, you couldn't use a needle. And so I like the, uh, I like their, you know, ethics back then. So I haven't read their new code now, but back <laughs> then it was, it was, uh, it kind of fit my persona. And where do you think your ethics came from? Well, I was raised, my mother was uh, Assembly of God, uh, not a pastor, but a Sunday school teacher. And my her side of the family was all uh, Assembly of God or Pentecostal. So from, you know, birth, I was dedicated to God. And, uh, you know, I just had that. I had, you know, I went to church two or three times a week with my mother. And so I got all that, you know, the, the uh, I guess you could say I got religion from her. Right. And even though you were, you know, you had to fight for your survival and you, you got drawn into this kind of outlaw world, God was still a big part of your life. Well, I would say, uh, like, say, for instance, once I was riding my chopper with some of my brothers and a couple of my brothers, it was raining and they flipped like God the bird, right? While we were driving, and uh -huh. I'm like, I'm not riding next to you, you're going to get hit by lightning. <laughs> right. And I, my morality was that such as, you know, let's say a prayer for this food because I don't know where the heck you guys got it, but it looks like half raw rabbit. <laughs> so, we so my, my, uh, at 15 years old, the president of my club, his name was Houdat, the next president. And we had a guy named John the Baptist. It seems like he always got in water. And we had another guy called the preacher, which he really wasn't. And so he said, you know what? You're always there when there's a, a need for a fight or for someone to show up. You always talk about God. So we're going to call you dog, which is God spelled backwards because you're very, a very loyal person. And of course the, I was so young. They thought I was 18, but I had a fake ID and I was 16. So my first year was, was instead of dog, it was puppy. Right. Right. Well, that makes sense. And, and you became the sergeant at arms in the club, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, because go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. At 17, there's different positions, vice president, treasurer, uh, first speaker of the house kind of, and sergeant of arms. Sergeant of arms had to be the guy that started the trouble and ended the trouble, mostly fights. And my father was a champion heavyweight boxer in the Navy. So from eight years old on, my daddy used to take a uh, uh, water hose and make a ring in the front yard, you know, make a round circle and box me. And then my dad put me into karate and jujitsu and, uh, all that one and, and judo when I was like nine. So I, I, I very well, I, you know, ended up being a black belt with a couple red stripes, but I ended up, you know, being able to defend myself. I was small. I'm still five, seven, but I was what the littlest one, but, uh, I was one of the toughest because I knew right where to hit someone or 
stuff like that. Well, what's amazing to me is obviously you could physically handle yourself, but your ability to speak is is just off the charts. So when you had to start or end trouble, how often was it your ability to communicate with somebody as opposed with just fucking them up? Well, I, you know, uh, I always had it. My uh, girlfriends would say you, I was a silver tongue devil back right. then. Yes. So I always, I always had the ability to talk my way out of trouble. Usually. Well, it's a great, it's a great skill to have. And, um, and back then when you're, you know, basically a teenager running with the devil's disciples, how much, uh, like drugs are going on. How much are you using? Like what's, what's the activity around drugs with, uh, with the crew? Well, back then, you know, some of the girls in our club sold different drugs, but we didn't, <clears throat> we weren't allowed to do any methamphetamine because still today, meth is the snitch drug. If you, do methamphetamine you're a rat because you talk 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 uh heroin wasn't that big and it usually uh you know we called them junkies and they laid around and threw up on each other true all so true we, we did like red sucking all true and all we did a lot of valiums we did downer drugs that you know you couldn't feel any pain or uh you know we we associated and we'd smoked a lot of pot. We associated the other drugs with the hippies. So there was a difference between a biker and a hippie. And we weren't doing hippie drugs. So I never, thank God, got into uh, really bad drug use. Totally. Um, but uh, the, fir- the, 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 the thing that changed your life was on a weed deal, right? Yeah, we pulled up. Uh, there was four or five of us bikers, disciples, and we pulled up to a house in Pampa, Texas, to buy pot from a guy. My brother, one of my brothers, went inside while we all sat outside, and we heard a shot, and he came running out. I thought he had been shot, and halfway to the hospital, he said, "I hit the guy in the shoulder," and my brother pulled out a shotgun, a sawed-off, to rob him. And the guy grabbed the gun and it went off. So uh, in 1976, I and four other disciples were convicted of first-degree murder. Even though we didn't see the shooting, and, you know, I never seen any of it. uh, In the state of Texas back then, you were just as guilty as the guy that pulled the trigger. So I got five in Texas. A murder conviction is, uh, is... five to 99 years. So because I didn't have too much to do with it, I got a five-year sentence. Thank God for that, right? And um, and you went to jail, and I, I've heard a bunch of your stories. I, I love the story about how you got the, uh, the coveted job in jail. Um, how quick did you figure out how you needed to adapt once you were uh, locked up in Texas? Well, uh, you know, the ceiling, I'd never seen a ceiling that high. Right. I was like, oh, my God. And the hallway, we had one hallway three-quarters of a mile long. And I I saw things that I'd never dreamed about. You know, guys being sexually assaulted, guys killing guys. And I thought, I told God in the cell one day, right when I got there, why am I in here? 
you know I didn't see the murder. I didn't do it. I don't know what the heck I'm in here for. And t Texas Department of Corrections was built with bricks. And I heard something say to me, you ain't guilty of this one. But every brick stands for a crime you did do, and you're paying for all of it. So I was like, oh, my God. Right. Oh, my God. So scary and heavy. And, um, and you didn't do it, but you were guilty by association. Um, well, yeah, well, they, call, they didn't call it that. They called it, uh, you know, first-degree murder, they <laughs> called it. And they, they said we had planned to do it. We faced the death penalty first because if you, if you kill someone during a robbery in the state of Texas back then, you were eligible for old Sparky, which was the electric chair. Right. During the trial, uh, one of the witnesses that turned state evidence, once she got on the stand, she flipped back to us and said, you know, dog didn't go in. We didn't want to kill the guy. The guy who shot him, his name was Donnie. And then she said, we were told that the guy grabbed the gun and just went off. So we they couldn't get us for uh, homicide with the intent to rob. They convicted us on the first degree murder charge, which is a which is a heavy, 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 heavy charge. Um, but you managed to get out only in eighteen months. How did how did it, how did it go down? Well, I I uh, became warden's barber. I saw that the barber was never assaulted. He never he always had new clothes on. Uh, he was respected by everybody because you better not beat the warden's barber up because the warden every Thursday, every weekend, the girls came to see the husbands and the warden was a player. He, you know, was a handsome man and he, uh, you know, greeted the wives. I could say that in a nice way. Sure. He greeted the wives of the, all the inmates. So you knew you better not beat up the warden's barber. So I, uh, luckily became the warden's barber and then one day in december of, of uh, 1978 the head warden of all the prisons came to get a haircut for dog because my reputation grew throughout the prison that this guy is one of the best barbers and so warden jacka was his name and he said what are you in here for did you shoot the guy did you catch your wife with the guy and shoot him because back then they had just made it illegal to shoot the you know if you catch your wife with a man it used to be you shot the guy and you didn't do no time right well they just had made it illegal to shoot the guy so i said no warden jack and i told him the story <clears throat> and so the next morning the SWAT team came and got me out of my cell and put me in the in the hole in solitary confinement for lying to the warden. Terrible. And so uh, I stayed 24 hours in the hole, and I thought, what did I lie about? And they called me back out of the hole in front of the, the, the uh, warden, lieutenant, captain, all, you know, six of the major guys in there. And Warden Jack has said, I called Sheriff Ruth Jordan in Pampa, Texas. And I go, yeah. And he said his father was a one-armed sheriff for 37 years, and he was my friend. 
And Ruth Jordan was six foot nine and weighed about 365. Big old cowboy, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And he said, I talked to Ruth about what your charge was. And by God, he told me the same story you did. He said, dog, what the hell are you doing in here? And he said, when I talked to Ruth, I asked Ruth how they convict him. And Ruth Jordan said, there's something about that kid. We had to change him. We had to straighten him out. And so uh, February 2nd is my birthday. And on February 2nd, 1979, one of the guards walked by my cell and said, your birthday gift is coming a little late this year, doggy. And I was like, wow, I wonder what that's going to be. And on February 6th, 1979, at 7.30 in the morning, Texas time, they gave me a piece of paper that said, you're out of here. Amazing. So I, I left in 1979 on February the 6th. I left the prison. It's, it's amazing to me. One, one of my most favorite things about your story is kind of how you collected all these skills and the skills that you collected kind of dictated the way your life was going to go. Like it, when you were in jail, um, you were uh, you were the guy that that talked people through their problems. Right. Well, the, the warden. I was raised by a Navy father, so, and in the West Colorado, so there wasn't any real prejudice, okay? No matter what tribe you came from, you were still a man. And so, when I went to Texas, it was uh, very, very, very racist. Right. And I had never seen a black man be treated like they were. And so I used to talk to my brothers and say, you know, it's sorry they treat you like that. And the warden caught me doing it and said, boy, you can talk to them guys, can't you? And I go, yeah. And he said, I'm going to make inmate counselor when one of their uh, parents or a close relative would die. And the inmate found out they'd throw him in the hole because as soon as your mama or your daddy dies, you're going to run. You're going to the funeral. You don't care where you're at. And so they put the inmate in the solitary confinement, and I, the warden would come get me, and I'd have to go into solitary and talk the guy out of killing himself or killing a cop or running from prison. So people used to say, where did you learn how to talk to prisoners in the back seat of your car? And I said, it's a long story. Right. It's an amazing skill. And, and um, as the barber and as the prison counselor, like um, I never went to prison. The mo- most time I ever did was a night in the tombs in New York City a few times. So I was very fortunate with that. But I, you know, I get most of my my prison information from uh, guests on the show or TV or whatever. But if you're uh, if you're the prison counselor and you're the warden's barber, does that create any kind of resentment with the rest of the uh the jail people, the other prisoners? No, because I volunteered to cut the inmates hair. Nice. And I uh, would cheat for them. Like I'd put it, I'd put it, uh, I'd put Vaseline in their hair or I'd cut the hair where it would look like it was really, really short. And on visiting day, they look cool for their wives. So 
everybody wanted me to cut their hair because I cheated for them. Nice. And you got good at it. And um, what yeah. about the original uh, story about the uh, the dude who fled and you had to go after him or whatever? Uh-huh. Like, um, w- like, wasn't there a story where there was a guy called Bigfoot and... Uh, and and he had um, what was the story? Tell us the story because I I'm not going to well, get the details right. Bigfoot Bigfoot had a size sixteen eighteen brogan that was the name of the boot, and I had never seen a man that big besides Ruth Jordan. And Bigfoot had a third grade education, and so he was writing his mama a letter one day, and I seen him and I said, "Let me see what you're what are you doing?" He said, "I'm writing my mama a letter," and I said, "Let me see it." And I mean, I couldn't read one of the words. And one day he said, how do you spell was? And I said, it's W-E-Z. And he's like, thank you, dog. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, Bigfoot, why, where'd you go to school? He said, well, I went clear to the third grade. And I said, well, why didn't you go higher? And he said that he had to cross a river to get to school every morning and the white man on the riverboat would charge a nickel to ride across the river. And he said, someday, dog, mom only had three cents. So I didn't go to school then. And I thought, wow, you know, where am I here? What part of the earth am I in? And so him and I became very good friends. And Bigfoot could beat anybody up in prison. And so I knew by... Uh, after I became his friend, I realized that nobody touched me because Bigfoot would break him in half. It's so a, one day, Bigfoot, I was working in the barber shop outside the prison gate, right outside the prison gate, and I saw the, the guards bringing Bigfoot to the solitary confinement, which was right there by my barber shop. And all of a sudden, I saw this guard hit the ground. And out of the solitary confinement came <clears throat> came Bigfoot running. And I heard the tower guards yelling at him for freezing. And he just kept running, and he didn't know how to run. And so I had a shoeshine boy named Ronnie Coleman, and I told Ronnie, they're going to kill my friend. <clears throat> Ronnie said, yeah, they are. And so I took out after him, running after him, and I tackled him in the middle of the road, dirt road, and this lieutenant was right behind me. I didn't know it until I tackled Bigfoot, and he threw these handcuffs down in the dust, and he said, hook him up, bounty hunter. And I said, I can't hook him up, lieutenant. And so he put me in the hole for refusing an order. And so the warden called me in after four days in the hole and said, we're going to ship you to another farm because they're going to kill you because you ran an inmate down. And I said, warden, I didn't run anybody down. I saved his life. He's my friend. So the warden said, okay, I'm going to put you back in population. And if you're alive in the morning, you can stay. So that night, I had a meeting with the Muslims and Ronnie Coleman, the shoeshine boy was my friend was sitting next to me and the Muslims come, came up and said, why'd you run a black man down? 
And I said, I don't care what color he is. He's my friend. Well, they were going to kill you. I go, I don't care. At least I, the Bible says if you die for something righteous, you go straight to heaven. Don't pass go. <clears throat> so when I woke up in the morning outside my cell, I still cry about this. I'm sorry. But outside my cell was stamps, candy bars, cigarettes, rolling papers, envelopes, paper. And the warden called me in. He said, by God, they'd give you a love offering. Well, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, especially even today to hear a story like that, because it's important. You know what I mean? It's like amazing that you could be that guy. You were like a Martin Luther King in Texas prison. It's great. <laughs> oh, no way like Martin Luther King, but thank you for the compliment. But I, uh, I was dog, dog disciple my whole life, and that day I became dog the bounty hunter. Now, house, I got out of the, I went back to population and everybody started calling me the bounty hunter. And one of my favorite movies in all my life was Steve McQueen and Wanted Dead or Alive. Right. Because, because McQueen had been a bad guy once in his life and he turned good guy. And I thought, oh my God, I might be able to do this. So I started studying from the library, is there bounty hunting? And I realized that it, the American law said that you can arrest someone. It's called citizen's right to arrest. So when I got out of jail, I went to the post office and got the top most wanted by the FBI. And within a month, I caught one. And there's 10 grand per guy. And my, my, uh, the FBI came to me and said, we're going to teach you and we can't believe what you do. We're going to introduce you to this guy named Tony Robbins, who talks a lot like you do, only he don't cuss. And they said, so I met Tony Robbins and became a guest speaker for Tony Robbins for many, many years. What did what did uh, what did Tony Robbins have to do with the FBI? He was teaching them how to sharpshoot. Wow. And he was t talking about. You, you know, of course, I wasn't there at the class because I can't carry a gun, but he was teaching them. Uh, they hired him to teach marksmanship. So that was before he was some sort of life coach. He was just this amazing shooter for the FBI. Well, no, he was a life coach for many, many years. He came out of Zig Ziglar's camp. And uh, but a lot of lot of organizations would hire him, like Prudential Insurance. Uh, you know, don't give up, don't this and that. So so he was hired by for pep talks, basically. Right. And then he realized that, wow, I can do this in big groups. And the, one of the first times ever, the first time I ever spoke, and I think it was the first time he had seventy five hundred people in the crowd. Now he's got 75,000, but we, believe it or not, we went to Austin, Texas. And uh, I was—I told him I don't want to go back to Texas. And the, uh, the money that he offered me to speak back then was a lot. It isn't today, but, and my mom, my mother said, you're going. God put this man in your life. And she was right. So I went down there to speak and the second time I spoke was in California in the dead Palm Springs 
and I met this guy named Martin Sheen. And Martin Sheen said to me, uh, he was my partner. Well, first I spoke a lot, and then Tony said, you're, doing, you're going through the course. And I said, I don't need this course. And he goes, yes, you do. You're going to go through it for me. So my my partner was Martin Sheen. You you do stuff. You part you partnered up. And after a few days with Martin, he said, "My God, you, young man, you need a TV show." He saw talent. He he saw what he saw the future of Dog the Bounty Hunter, which is amazing. Um, and I yeah. just I I just love the way all of these little skills. The only skill you didn't get to use again was barbering, because every other skill comes to play in in your whole career which is you never did see you could do a haircut thing on tv maybe then we could come full circle with that um well yeah but i got 12 kids so i do i used to cut all my boys hair my daughters i mean i and they hate it they're like ah, we don't care now we look like a prisoner dad <laughs> so uh you know i I am very good at still cutting hair, but I don't get a chance to do it. You're right. Well, it's it's an amazing story. Uh, and our show is mostly about, you know, drug addiction and using and all that kind of stuff. And I've heard that you had, uh, I mean, I've never heard that you were a drug addict or an alcoholic, but drugs were a part of your life. Um, so, like, how, how, you know, how were drugs around you? How did you deal with, with drugs in general? Well, it... 1994, I lost my mom. So I was in Hawaii. She passed away in Hawaii, and I'm I met this girl, and she, I was always crying. I mean, I still cry. I love my mommy so much. And I, uh, she said, here, Richard Pryor smoked this stuff, and it helps you forget your pain. Wow. It's called freebasing. And I said, all right, I'll try it. And I did one hit. And a year later, I woke up. Wow. And, and Beth came to Hawaii, and she said, Dog, that's crack you're smoking. I said, what is that? And she goes, that's cocaine. And I said, no, it's not. She goes, yes, it is. And so I, Beth got me out of it. She called the cops, got me fired. I finally had to leave Hawaii and go back to Colorado and stay with Beth. And uh, she just took, she got me out of that. How difficult, then, how difficult was that? How difficult was getting, I mean, a lot of people have a hard time getting off crack. It's not an easy fix. How difficult was it for you? Oh, it's terrible. I'm, tr I'm quitting smoking right now. Quitting smoking is worse. Yeah. I, I but quit. The second, the second thing there is, is heroin and crack. You know, I've got a lot of uh, heroin, addict friends that uh, I recommend and sorry to say this, but I recommend marijuana and you know, I don't, I, I uh, have done this 40 years, so I don't play around and I don't care what anybody thinks about it, but a lot of people need a crutch no matter who you are. And a lot of my friends are that way. There's something happened in their life or they just like to get high. So I put my guys, when I have them out on bond, I'll tell them, you want to hit a heroin, you're going back to jail. And, well, dog, what do I do? I said, smoke pot. And it, so far, it's, it's worked on almost every single guy or girl that has been a, an addict on crack, <laughs> on heroin, 
on uh, ox cotton. They all smoke some good weed. And, you know, I got a call from a guy the other day. Dog, you saved my life. I've, I've touched a spoon of heroin in a, over a year. But he said, I smoke about five joints a day. Hmm. And I go, well, I said, that's all right. You know, and then lo and behold, here in the last five years, a lot of states have made it legal. So, uh, you know, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a marijuana advocate. And a lot of people, you know, oh, that's drugs. Yeah, well, go take a hit of your whiskey and do a value. Right, right. Because no. that's what they do. So, and a lot of people get upset at me. You know, the FBI, about 10 years ago, I would recommend pot. And the feds called me and said, dog, you're on right on the borderline. You know, you're recommending pot. And I go, well, I'm not telling them where to get it. And I'm not giving it to them. They're like, well, we wish you'd watch it. And I said, okay, I will. Of course, I lied. I didn't. I kept it up. And so I know that it's a lifesaver at times. And I mean, real addicts, you know, like you were. You were a real addict, you know. Yeah. You didn't play around. You That heroin controlled your life. No, I know. I know. So you were like a pre, you were a harm reductionist ahead of the curve, you know, like, uh, which is great. You. you know, um, I, I, um, I'm amazed when you talk to these guys on the bounties and on the TV shows and the compassion that you give them, how often is it drugs on these bounties? Oh, 98%. And, and when you sit down with them, like, you know, what what would you say the first thought in your head when you talk to one of these guys is? Because, like, they're obviously these big bad guys. You're getting set to, to risk your life, risk your family's life to catch them, and it's scary as hell, right? Yeah, it, you don't get scared. You get worried. You don't. If you're scared, you got to get out of it. Right. I would be. I would be so the worst. I would be the worst caution, bounty hunter in the history. The word. There's not. I'm sure there's not many Jewish bounty hunters out there, and I would be the worst. The worst bounty hunter in the history of bounty hunting, because I would just be well, a, a worried mess. See, well, being that you said that, my good brother Zeke is Jewish out of L.A., and he is a nut, and he is a bounty hunter. Okay. So the the Jewish uh, tribe makes real good bounty hunters. You should do. You should produce a spinoff called Zeke the Jewish Bounty Hunter. I bet you it would do amazing. We tried, but he's a little. Uh, He's a little erratic, so. <laughs> so when you sit down. I'm not, I'm not saying most Jews are, but Zeke is. No, I got it. I got it. When when you sit down with an addict or a dealer or whatever, and because uh, obviously hopelessness is a huge piece when you're busted, right. right? So so how do you approach that usually? I guess it's different every time, but what's the what's the, the common denominator? Well, it is different every time, but you st I start the same thing every time. So tell me how long you've been doing this, and do you remember the first time you tried it? And they every single one says, yeah. And I go, so what made you try it? And most of them, there's an excuse, and some of them, a very few, say, I don't know, my old lady did it, or... My friend did it, and I just wanted to try it. And once I tried it, I liked it. But usually, you know, the mother died, the father raped the girl or raped the guy, or the uncle raped the guy, 
or there's some kind of underlying uh, devastating thing that happened in their life and they turn to drugs. Yeah. And then, and then you kind of offer your spirituality and your compassion. Um, how soon after you catch them, do they usually, you know, do they become human again? You know what I mean? Like, that's what I've been, when I watch your show, I see this scary dude. And then all of a sudden I see them totally humbled and human, but I guess they're human the whole time. Right. Yeah, they are. But you, you, I bring them out of that, you know, I bust the bubble they're in. And of course, from my talk, they go straight to jail. So the only thing that they have to remember someone being nice to them is me. So I get calls all the time. I would I would say, and it's not a high rating, I would say 65% of guys that or girls that I talk to uh, go straight. And, of course, everybody backslide, everybody. And the drug rehabs used to, oh, if you backslide, you're kicked out. <clears throat> and I'm like, it's all right, it's all right. You know, the oh, there was one guy that never dialed the wrong number, and uh, he never did a sin, and his name was Jesus. And other than that, you know, all of us, no matter what tribe we're from, are human. Sure. So get, so get back on your horse. You got bucked off. Did you feel guilty? And they go, oh, my God, I felt so guilty, dog. I go, well, keep a hold of that feeling of guilt and shame and get back on the horse and let's ride again, brother. And I'll be right next to you. If you ever feel like doing a load or it gets too bad, I want you to call the 808 number and I'll answer and I'll talk you out of it. Amazing. So I just, I spent two days ago, three days ago talking one of my girls out of getting high because she goes, I got to have a load. I go, no, you don't. Cause if you do, Number one, I am coming to revoke your bond, sister. Hmm. And you're going back in that jail. You got it? Yes, Uncle. I go, now, you're going to just call me every hour. and Don't you move. Then I called her mother. And I said, get over there right now. She's ready to, to backslide. The mama drove over there. She called me two days later. And she said, dog, I love you so much. I said, I love you too, Becky. You just can't do that. She goes, when I feel like that again, I'm a calling you. I said, okay. Wow. That's an incredible thing that you can do for people to be available. Well, thank you. And, thank to you. and the, the whole idea is the aftercare. You just can't say, you know, uh, sin be gone, you know, Jesus name be healed. And, yeah. you know, you can say that, but you got to, you got to hang in there with them and you got to counsel and love them, you know, through this, you know, and I, I just am, I get so excited when one of them makes it. I just get so cry babyish, and I get so feeling so good about myself. And, you know, it just helps me so much. It just, it just got given me a gift that I, I'm very proud of. Well, it's, it's something to be very proud of. And uh, the fact that you're so, that you are so emotional and so loving and so caring and yet you were this very, very tough guy coming up, the sergeant at arms, all that stuff. Were you always this loving and emotional even back then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been a crybaby since I was three. Nice. Yeah, I, I just always, you know, I just always 
have had those emotions. I'm soft hearted. Now, you know, I can turn it on a dime. Believe me, I can turn into uh, the Kraken quicker than you could ever see. But I'd rather be the nice guy. But, you know, I see that I can be their worst nightmare also. You have to be able to do both. And, um, yeah. and obviously we, we all experienced, uh, your grief when Beth died. Uh, and, uh, and I just, you know, I, I gave you a condolence before we started. I want to do a condolence on, on the, on the air. Uh, your relationship was obviously just so full of love. You just watch that show and it's obvious, you know what I mean? Like you can just feel right. it. Um, my mom died, um, you know, like 11 years ago. And my dad and my mom were kind of like you and Beth in that they were, partners you know what i mean together in it and he's still grieving uh her and 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 it's getting easier but it takes time how did how do you get through it good question well you know i have a lot of jewish friends okay and and the in the jewish religion you they do not even mark the grave till after one year right so when I went to my Jewish friends, they said, after a year, dog, you'll start noticing. Right now, it's called mourning. You're mourning. So it was almost a year, and I was driving down the road, and it, I, something, I lost my car at the hospital, couldn't find it. And I pulled my car over, and I started in on God. And I said, all right, here I am. I don't want to get married again, but God, I need a woman. I said, I can't take this. Beth's up there partying with God, with all these angels, and she's on God's great big old computer, and she's watering the garden. But I'm down here bawling every day. So I took my phone, and I went to where God created Adam and Eve in Genesis. And before I got there, I saw this scripture that said, for God does not want a man to be alone. And I go, oh, my God, I didn't know it said that. So I said a prayer right then, and I made a deal with God. And lo and behold, about two weeks later, I met this lady named Francie. I've read about her. And Francie had lost her husband six months before I lost Beth. And Francie is a rancher. And there was no rancher in my book. No, my book of dates did not include any kind of cowgirl or rancher. Right. And all of a sudden, uh, it took me a while. And all of a sudden, I fell in love with Francie. And I said a prayer, a dumb prayer to Beth and said, you know, this ain't so-and-so and this ain't so-and-so and Beth, she don't even smoke cigarettes. She goes to church three times a week. And would you get mad if I'd love her? I could feel Beth say, you better pick a Francie. Beautiful. You better pick one like that and not know Anna Nicole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what she said to me. Well, wow. And so it's been a year now yesterday that Francie and I first went on our date. And uh, about seven months after the date, I said, Francie, Frayne, will you marry me? And she said, absolutely. If you read your Bible every day, and if you speak at churches with me, Dwayne, I will love you till the day that you die. 
Amazing. That's and a- so I made her that deal. So every morning I read, I'm in, uh, I'm in, uh, Leviticus right now and I'm going through, uh, the Bible again, because of course everybody reads it in jail, but I never read some of the things I've read. So I still love Beth and I will always love Beth. No, of but course. God does not want a man to be alone. Well, I think that's a that's a very very beautiful sentiment. How how did the kids handle it? Obviously, you have a ton of kids and a ton of grandkids. How did they deal with it? Well, I had had a couple other girls that were like, uh, uh, you know, could have been a possibility. And my daughters are maniacs. They were like, "Well, don't let us see that bee. We'll kill it." And I'm like, "Oh my God!" So they met Francie, and maybe Lisa said to me. Daddy, don't you dare lose her. You better quit smoking because she don't like cigarettes. That's so a- I'm way down to about four or five cigarettes a day now because Dr. Oz is on my Ocole. He's on me constantly to quit. So uh, the kids love her. It's just Gary Boy, Cecily, uh, all of Leland. They all just... Uh, they they love Francie and she loves them. She's got two kids, and uh, she's a lot different mom than any woman I ever had because she don't give them a chance. Boy, she's really strict. Nice. It sounds. It and sounds... my kid, my kids need that. So. Well, you need it too. So I I I, I mean, not that you need my support, oh. but I support you. It sounds it sounds very nice to me. Um, with the smoking, I mean, I, I obviously I quit heroin and I quit I quit weed and I quit smoking and smoking was fucking tricky. Uh, what are you doing yeah. about it? How are you getting through it? Well, I'm using a tip on the cigarette and Dr. Oz put me on two patches. Uh, so every 24 hours I change them and I put on two patches. Do now, the- if I don't wear a patch, man, I need a cigarette so bad. Right. But allegedly, and I know a lot of people have done it, it that nicotine is like a drug. I put a heroin addict in jail the other day and I said, Bro, you gotta quit doing that stuff. He goes, Yeah, good luck on your cigarettes. <laughs> and I and I stopped and said, You know what? You're right, Ronnie. You are so right that nicotine is a drug as just as dangerous as heroin. And brother, I apologize. And every time I need a cigarette, Ronnie, I'm going to think about you, brother. Ronnie's still in jail right now. So I hope by the time he gets out here in a year, I'll be completely, completely quit. And I can go and say, Ronnie, one of the reasons I quit smoking is because of you. I love that. Because I I know how good that makes me feel when someone says that to me. If they quit a drug, it's some of the reason is because of what you said to me, dog then I, I feel, again, very pride, prideful of myself. No, I love that. I love that a lot. Um, I have one more question, which is like, sure. obviously, you've lived uh, an incredible life, and, uh, and, and you, you built up this huge television career, and yet still you're around criminals and jail and rehab and, and crime and, and running, like, are the two worlds very crazy to, to coexist? Like, to be this entertainment guy, but also still be putting guys in jail? Like, how do the two worlds coexist for you at this point? 
Well, uh, you know, you're Jewish. I'm uh, uh, Pentecostal, or I'm uh, Gentile. And so, in my in my way of believing, uh, that's a very good question, and no one's ever asked me that. But here's my answer: When Jesus was crucified, right next to him were two thieves. And in my Bible says, or the Gentile Bible says, that one of the thieves said, you're nothing, you freak. You know, if you was a bad, if you such a badass, you'd take yourself off this cross and you'd get out of here. And the other thief said, Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God and I love you. And Jesus said, I'm a brother. By tonight, you and I are going to be sitting with my father in heaven at dinner. So the two worlds coincide so much that no wonder I'm in it. Right. And does it, does it ever get confusing? Like the entertainment side, the money side, the, the wine and dine, fancy time side versus the, the grit of the reality and the crime side? Or does it just, does it go easy? No, it, you know, I don't drink and all that because I'm Apache. I can't I'll go nuts. I get so sick. You talk about hungover. Oh my gosh. So, uh, I get sick. So I don't, and people know that, you know, they know don't offer me nothing. Cause I get upset and I go, listen, you know, or just have one shot. I go, I'm going to shoot. Well, the shot I'm going to take is at your mouth. <laughs> because if you're, if you're my friend, you're trying to offer me alcohol and you know that I'm Apache. And if I get drunk, I'm not going to act the same way. So if you ask me one more time to take a shot, I'm going to bust you right in the mouth. And I love you, but quit doing it. And I, I have that probably once every couple months where a, a celebrity that I meet will, you know, try to get me to do something or, you know, let's do a, a what do they call it? Let's do a bump. And I'm like, What's like, I'm thinking, you know, bumping booties. What are you talking about? Bump. And that's a low, that's a line of coke. Sure. And when my, my friend said, well, you know, it's a line. I told him, listen, bro, you pull that stuff out in front of me and I'm going to stick it where the sun don't shine. And I said, you're going to get off better than you ever have in your life snorting it. Maybe. And they're like, oh, I'm very sorry, dog. I said, don't you do you're forgiven, but don't ever, ever in life do it around me or ask me again to do it. Right. I hear you. I hear you, man. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Uh, your story is incredible. Uh, you do great well, things you, in this Daniel. world. Thank you, brother. And uh, and I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Um, all right, man. Thank you. All right, brother. Thank you. We appreciate you too because you've been there, done that too. So, you know, it's just not me. You're there. You're there too. So you get it. I appreciate you taking your time and giving me a chance to talk to your people. No, right on, dog. I really, really, really uh, love to hear your message. And if there's ever anything that we can do for you, never hesitate to uh, give me a call. And that same thing. I I do misdemeanors, no felonies. But if you ever need anything done, I'll do it. All right. Thank you, dog. I appreciate your time, man. Thank you, bro. Right. Aloha. Bye -bye. Aloha. Have a great day. So that was Dog the Bounty Hunter, and I was worried in the beginning that he wouldn't like me, that he wouldn't be interested in talking to me.
Why? And I had him crying like Ray Brown on Dopey. He cried a lot. Like Ray Brown on Dopey. Yep. He was a sweetheart, though. A crazy life, yeah. And he cried, what, twice? I think he cried thrice. Thrice. <laughs> um, and uh, I, loved, I loved every... I just think he's a kind-hearted dude, and I think he is out in the world trying to make the world a better place in his head. And I think that's cool. And I he wonder, does it hunting criminals. I wonder how much money he gets for hunting criminals. He makes X amount from the show. 10% on every bond plus. Then his biggest thing is he hunted down, I'm sure in your incredible research. I saw it, yeah. That he hunted down the Max Factor era. Yep, yep. Did you hear that story? Yep. And um, I think he makes good money getting bounties and better money being a TV star. Yeah. Um, yeah, Crazy Life 12 Kids. The thing that I regret more than anything is that I'm watching that Star Wars show I told you about, yeah. The Mandalorian, and The Mandalorian is a bounty hunter, and I wish I had asked Dog the Bounty Hunter about it. If he'd watched that show. Even if he hasn't watched it, I'm sure one of his kids talks about it. Well, you know, he's the only bounty hunter that anyone has ever heard of. I've never heard of another bounty hunter. I guess it's a thing. I guess there's a bunch of them. Oh, he talks He talks about his friend Zeke, who's a bounty hunter. His Jewish friend Zeke. Yeah. Je I think that would be an amazing <laughs> franchise. Zeke, the Jewish bounty hunter. I want to know about Zeke being erratic. I want the details on that. I know. I think that would make a good show. I don't know why he didn't like that. Um, I also just think that, like, I had never seen what Dog's thing was, and I always thought he would just be this crazy tough guy. And I found him to be just a to the opposite, just the how, biggest sweetheart. How does he catch them if he doesn't have a gun? How does he make them All stop? All of his kids and his wife and his brother have guns. Oh, okay. And usually the people are like, hey, dog, I'll come. Yeah. And, and then they, they ride off. And dog was a huge marijuana advocate, too. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. But I'm honored that dog came on the show. I was honored he cried. I'd say, I say this all the time. Any guest that cries on Dopey is, like, my favorite kind of guest. Does he still smoke dope? I didn't even ask. I mean, weed? I didn't even ask. You know, we used to call weed dope. I never did. In the 60s. Yeah, I never did. Um, I don't know. I, I, would, I would imagine he does, but maybe not. Who maybe. knows? Edible, I guess edibles. The most disappointing, who knows? We don't know what dog the bounty hunter is eating, smoking, drinking, or whatnot. I was very disappointed when I found out that Dog um, didn't remember Todd uh, because I had this fantasy that, of course, he, right. the, the way Todd... Of course told, I remember Todd. He is so great. The way Todd would tell it, he was, like, living in their house, yeah. rolling joints for him and Beth. Yeah. And it's like... No, there's, like, 100 people on the crew. Yeah, there's probably... As, as my friend Sam and the producer of the show says, there's hundreds of Todds, which hurts yeah, me. Yeah, right. It, it hurts me. There's, for me, there's only one Todd. Well, a friend of mine works on a TV show, and she was telling me about it. And I was like, how many people work on the show? And she's like, how many do you think? And it's a big show. And I was like, 40? And she's like, Ray, there's like 30 writers. Not on Dog the Bounty Hunter. Not on Dog, but on, on like a scripted show. On Dog the Bounty Hunter, there's probably two PAs, a, a little camera crew, a sound guy. But the thing was, because he did the show for 10 years... There were probably always a different PA, yeah, they, and they Todd changed. was there at the end. Um, I had a dream about Todd last night that we were living in uh, the East Village, and, and we were trying to run a soup kitchen out of our apartment, and there were people coming, and Todd was cooking, 
And I was like, dude, give the food to the people. He's like, no, this is my food. I don't want to give this to the people. And it was just the weirdest dream. I woke up at 5 in the morning, and, um, and that was that. But uh, it's always nice to have a dream about Todd because um, it's like you're there. It's like you're with him. Yeah. And, um, you know, I schmaltz it up about Todd and Chris all the time. But it, it is traumatic to me that they died in this whole thing. And Dog the Bounty Hunter was, I wanted him to say how great Todd was. Yeah. I really did. I wanted him to say, oh, Todd was such an idiot, Todd this, <laughs> whatever. Todd told me this story. He would go with them to Hawaii, and he would go with them to Colorado. And he came back from the Colorado trip, and he said he went out drinking with the crew, and he wanted to find some heroin. And he went out looking for heroin, and he wound up finding crack. And he spent the night smoking crack on the streets of Boulder, and it was like, it just blew me away because he, Todd wasn't, he wasn't like adventurous. He was like a very like, he wanted to be safe and sound, and here he was on the streets of this strange city smoking crack, and I just knew that his addiction was really growing. Yeah, um, you, that's a story you hear a lot with people that are on drugs, narcotics, and they drink, and that leads them back to narcotics. Right, that's, and that was Todd's thing. And people were like, I don't have a problem with drinking. You know, heroin's my problem. That's exactly what his thing was. I remember every time that I would get clean, he would come over, and, and we'd go to 7-Eleven, and I would buy chocolate chip cookies, you know, the three-pack yeah. of chocolate. And, and he, he would, would get beer? He would buy tall boys. Yeah. Like, and, and he would just sit there and drink his beer. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I'm sure that boomeranged him right back out. Um, but I thought it was an honor to have Dog the Bounty Hunter on the show. Yeah. And it was an honor to hear him weep on the show and quote the Bible and all that shit. I liked all of it. Now, would you like to do a voicemail? Yeah. You would? As long as I don't read it. Oh, we're going to listen to it. We're going to listen to it. Well, you, listen, you don't read voicemails. I think you're starting to catch on. Hey, what's up, Dopey Nation? This is Dre calling in with a dopey story. I saw the Facebook post lamenting the lack of free drugs despite all the childhood warnings by the grown-ups. And I have many stories, actually, about receiving free drugs, I guess, for better or for worse. Um, but seeing that post somehow jogged my memory about this story, which made me laugh to myself, so I thought, oh, I should call this one in. So this takes place in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the year 2000. Um, I had pulled a geographic in the late 90s and moved to Savannah, Georgia. And then a couple years later was just right back. So I'm in my sticker-covered Jeep Cherokee. I'm still obsessed with stickers, uh, much like Dave and probably many of you in the Dopey Nation. If you see a silver minivan in Northern California with no less than three Dopey stickers, you know that's me. Um, anyway, so this day, I'm in that Jeep. I'm rolling on Paseo de Peralta north through Santa Fe, and uh, posted speed is 45, but everyone is going like 55. And in my rearview mirror, I catch this pickup truck like making a move. He's going to really go super fast. And so I stay in the right-hand lane, and all of a sudden, this dude pulls up next to me and slows down to match my speed, and the guy in the passenger seat makes the universal sign language for roll your window down. So I roll my window down. And the guy says, 
what county are you from? We're like yelling because we're in traffic. We're going really fast. It's pretty <laughs> loud. And my brain completely melts down. I'm like, what is this guy talking about? What county am I from? Like, where was I born? What is this about? And he yells, you have Georgia plates. What county are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from Savannah, Chatham County. And he says, I'm from Gwinnett. Do you need a button? And of course, my brain knows exactly what that means. So I say, yes. I'm still driving, like 50 miles an hour. I've probably slowed down a little bit at this point. And I scoot my Jeep over onto the like dashed white line in the middle of the lanes and stretch my arm out and drive along next to this guy while he's like fumbling around inside the pickup truck. And then he stretches his arm out. He puts like four peyote buttons in my hand. And then the driver of the pickup truck just drives off. Like I didn't even have time to say thank you. So yeah, free peyote rolling along at a fast clip in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Free drugs. And again, for better or for worse. Uh, but yeah, that's my story. Stay strong, dopey nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. I love that story. That's nice, short, sweet, free peyote. Yeah, three minutes. Um, I, don't, I don't understand it. Like, I, at first I thought he was giving her free drugs because he wanted to like talk to a girl, but... It sounds like he was just like, he just wants everybody to trip on peyote. He's spreading the gospel. Yeah, he's probably some peyote missionary in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, and you see somebody from Georgia, and you must have this peyote. I've never had peyote. Have you ever had peyote? No, they used to sell, isn't uh, mescaline like the active ingredient? They used to sell on the corners, uh, they go mesk, 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 in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And I took that, but I read up on it, because that was everywhere, mescaline in New York City. It was really a low dose of LSD, so it was like 75 micrograms. I never did mescaline either. I don't think I did either. I think I did a low dose of acid. And um, I wonder if I'll ever do peyote. I mean, I always think my ibogaine experience was close enough, but well, I wonder if I'll ever do peyote. Well, I was ayahuasca. wondering in the voice about I thought she was going to like crush it and chew it in the car and then like, Throw up and be tripping in the car, but she didn't do that. Well, but maybe Dre, but Dre, you could do a part two, and we can hear what happened. Yeah, did you did you chew it up? Because that's what, like like with mushrooms, like the idea of throwing up things, and that's I've always heard peyote's rough. I ate a ton of mushrooms, and I never threw up from it. I always hated eating them, and what we wound up doing in the end is we would brew mushroom tea all yeah, the time. Yeah, we did that, and uh, we would we would we there was a period in my. In my life, a weird period where we sold a lot of mushrooms. I don't think I ever talked about this on Dopey. I had a friend named John, and we had another friend named Todd, a different Todd, who yeah. was this deadhead uh, pot dealer who worked at Sam Ash in the microphone department. And he would always be at Wetlands uh, recording shows. Like he was like, yeah. one of those Wetlands guys. was like the hippie jam band club. And he had this shitty apartment in Queens, and we would go buy pounds of mushrooms from him. Like a duffel bag. Pound, yeah, pounds of mushrooms a lot. Well, he would sell them cheap when you bought pounds. Did he grow them? I don't know. I doubt. I, I have no idea. It was this dank, fucking, shitty apartment. Like for mushroom growing. And I had I had so much mushrooms that I had a a thermos of mushroom tea in my freezer uh, 
that I never drank. I think I took, I, I think I, I, I tripped a bunch of times on the mushrooms and then I tripped the ibogaine and I never tripped again. And when I moved out of the apartment, the mushroom tea was still in the freezer. Wow. I took a lot of mushrooms. I had a period of time where we would go to the fields and pick them and I would eat them right in the fields and then trip out with the cows and there'd be like cow skeletons. And then we'd ride bikes back to town and, um, and then cook it up sometimes and drink it. But I, I took mushrooms like a lot. Mushrooms, it's like, it's a young man's game. I would never eat a mushroom. I would never take mushrooms now. You would never take mushrooms or now? Or acid or anything well, like that. Well, I wouldn't either because I wouldn't want to risk my incredible life. But, but it's also like not an appealing experience. I learned pretty quickly that the only way I could enjoy psychedelics was with ridiculous amounts of weed. Like oh, to calm to me down. to numb it down, yeah. Because I would get too hyped up. Um but I enjoyed that voicemail, and, and she wrote a little note that I want to when read. I went to see Dylan at the Rolling Thunder Review in 75 or 76, and there was all these rednecks in Tallahassee that would have uh, mushroom tea, and they had big jugs of it waiting in line outside the Dylan show, and I'm like, I want some of that. What do you mean they have big jugs of mushroom like a, tea? Like a water jug, like a gallon, like a milk gallon. How do you know they had mushroom tea? Because they were like, anybody want mushroom tea? They are passing these things around. Did afterwards, did they get a jug made together and like... <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all I can imagine. Um, so I want to read Dre's note. She yeah. wrote, hey, Dave, I have so much to write about, but I got to get into work. Just let me just say, go Knicks. Holy shit, what a season. The teamwork, the defense, fucking Randall turning his whole thing around. Anyway, here's a dopey story just under three and a half minutes, so I hope you can use it. Much love and respect from Grass Valley, California, Dre. Dre, you're right. The Knicks are having an amazing season. Uh, I watched them last night pull out a victory against Washington. I'm having the time of my life with these Knicks. So thank this, you. For this bringing is that up. the time to go. Or wait, it's it's the season's over, right? No, what are you talking about? I, this is the time to go to see sports because like these all these no, stadiums they only are like ten percent. They only yeah, but you know how expensive. They only have two thousand tickets, and the Knicks are doing well. The Knicks haven't had a good season in twelve years. So, um, how much are the tickets? Like. Hundreds of dollars oh. for a family to go. Too much money. And I also don't like wearing a mask. I hate it. Um, in other news, yes, I've watched, people have been telling me about this movie, this documentary called Kid 90 from, I always mispronounced her name as Soleil Moonfry, but apparently her name is Soleil Moonfry. Yep. And she, of course, played Punky Brewsters in the 80s. And me and her are probably... The exact same Yeah, you're age. the right age for that documentary. I was very excited to watch that movie, and I could say I have never witnessed a human more irritating <laughs> than Soleil Moonfry as an adult. That's like head at, for Z Hills territory. Yeah, at the end. Like, I enjoyed Fuck it. Fuck at the end. You did at the First beginning. First scene, she... I just need to really examine my past and appreciate... It's like... Fuck you, Soleil Moonfry. Yeah, it was very self, self-indulgent. It was the most self-indulgent piece of... It's like she traveled the country to speak to her male friends so they could tell her that they love her. Yeah. That was the movie. Yeah. And it's like she has a family. She has Things have happened. There's not a self-deprecating bone in Soleil's body. It, the cool thing was to just get like a, a fly on the wall look at like 90s Hollywood, young Hollywood, just, you know, off, you know, partying. That was cool. 
I thought that was awesome. Verite, you know? I love to see that. But the fact that she didn't have any sort of, like... She she took herself so seriously. It was oh, it was so serious. Such a drag. And they called it. They build it as Goodfellas for '90s kids. I read that. I didn't understand that. I I I came of age in the '90s, and I love Goodfellas. Why is it Goodfellas? Because people died. I don't know. Because they thought. I think that people idolized the people in this movie so much. These kid stars, child actors, whatever. Just it. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of hating the popular girls in my high school. That's what this movie was for me. Uh, I, I fucking hated the fucking popular girls growing up, and this was a movie about loving them. That's I, what I got out of it. I was surprised that they all actually knew each other and hung out with each other. I was just assuming Hollywood people don't know each other and don't hang out with each well, other. Well, I think these kids, like... It, but it was a weird... It was a... Wouldn't you call it a complete exercise in self-seeking? Oh yeah, but it got good reviews. It got great reviews. <laughs> I know. And it's like I'm 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 baffled. I turned it like I watched the whole thing and I turned it off like ten minutes before it was over. So I didn't watch the whole thing. I was baffled at how it was. And our boy Danny Boy O'Connor yeah, was like there. the star of the show. Yeah, I know. It's the and, love of her life. And she returns to Tulsa. To it's, see him. It's weird that they didn't have sex. Like, they were kind of boyfriend and girlfriend. How do you know they didn't have sex? She said it. She said they never had sex. Yeah. And she reveals that she did lose her virginity to Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Yeah, no, she, they were, like, kind of boyfriend and girlfriend. But she was a virgin until, I think, after she was 18. Ah. Well, I found that movie to be incredibly self-serving. Um, maybe it's also I- interesting that she filmed her whole life... When she was quite young, like, what was she? What was she doing that for? Do you think Soleil Moonfry listens to Dopey? I hope so. Soleil, you need to get a grip, okay? Send a voicemail. Send in a voicemail. I watched this other thing of this guy Nelson Sullivan that he filmed his entire life, and it's like RuPaul and Lady Bunny, but all this stuff. It's all around my neighborhood. I walk by his house, and the comments are all like. This is so amazing. He knew YouTube was going to... He was vlogging before anyone. But at the time, when he's got the camera out, everybody's screaming at him, what are you filming everything for? Why are you doing this? You're so indul- you're self-indulgent. People at the time didn't like it, but people like it now. You think people like being shot now more than they did then? People didn't know how to react to the camera. And if you're in a nightclub or in your apartment, somebody's got a camera on you. Now people are like kind of used to it. Who the people I liked in the Soleil Moon Fry movie? I love the guy Brian Austin Green. Yeah, he was great. He from was nine hundred two one zero. I want him on Dopey. The person I want on Dopey more than anyone, and I should try, is yeah. uh, David Arquette. Oh yeah, he was in there too. He, he was telling talking some dopey stuff. Yeah, no, he had some. Yeah, he had he was some like, stories. He was like, yeah, I did coke, and then I started to do crack, and then <laughs> I guess I started to do heroin, but I only smoked it. Oh yeah, I shot it once. <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was so cute back then. He was great. He he was great. Does Brian that movie. Austin Green have a drug story? I don't think so. I feel like he does. I would do anything just because I spent interviewing Brian Austin Green. For Dopey was, would be kind of like uh, when I got to interview uh, Michael Imperioli because I did so many drugs watching 90210. Uh, and I, as a kid, I hated 90210. And Todd loved 90210. And when he moved in with me, he was like, let's watch. They played 90210 four times a day on fucking A&E. 
two hour episodes in the morning and two hour episodes in the afternoon. And they'd play the same ones. And we would get so fucked up in the morning that we'd watch the same ones again in the afternoon. I got mad at 90210 because I had sideburns before that came out. And then that came out and those boys had sideburns and I had to shave mine off. Well, you were way too punk punk rock to go in the wake of uh, Dylan and Brandon. (laughs) But uh, me liking 90210 is a great shame for me. Shame on me. It's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed to even reveal it. Wait, how old were you when 90210 came out? I didn't watch it when I was a kid. I watched it when I was a loser in reruns at my apartment with Todd, rooting for Dylan to relapse and shit. Um. This is interesting. I really hate it on Soleil Moon Fry. Yeah. Admitted I like 90210. The world is turning on sex in the city. How do you figure? They're they're going through it and they're reexamining it and they're like it is like racist and sexist and all kind of things. You live for cancel culture. They're can yeah, sex in the city is getting canceled. Wow. Well the one thing she says is she's like I hate my my friends that have partners. When I'm with them, it's like I'm in the war in Northern Ireland. That's the first one I saw. They're like, what? Your friendship, your your friends who have relationships are like the war in Northern Ireland? Well, but, it's, it's cultural insensitivity. Yeah. Do you think they'll ever cancel Dopey? Hopefully. Why? What, what else are you going to do? Get in the news. Well, I wish you luck on your North American tour. I hope it doesn't come soon. Do you expect it to come soon? I, I get my second shot April 19th, so I'm actively planning it. All right. Well, Dopey Nation, if you're in any of those cities that Ray is traveling to, look him up. And, Ray, maybe you should get back on Dopey Nation. I know they miss you. I know you'll show up again. You'll show up again soon enough. Yeah? You know that? I know. <laughs> uh, you know me? I think I know you pretty well. <laughs> you don't think I know you? I know you pretty well. I think I might know you better than you know yourself. Oh, yeah? I, it's possible. What did, do you think? Did, as soon as you met me, did you feel that? No. <laughs> no, I, I think it's taken me about seven years. And now I feel that way. I think last year I didn't feel that way. I think that COVID really accelerated our relationship. Do you remember when you asked me if I'd ever been to the crossroads? No. Tell me the story. Yeah. I, I texted you from the train. I was going upstate. And I'm like, are you still in a 12-step program? Because I think I need help. And then you called me later that day, and you were like, have you ever been to the crossroads? Do you smoke dope? Have you ever been to the crossroads? Have you ever seen the de-? I was like, yeah, I've been to the crossroads. And you're like, did you see the devil there? And I was like, no. And you were very interested in the crossroads. And then years later, I was like, I think Dave was high when we had that conversation. Probably, but why did I ask you if you went to the crossroads? I think you must have... Were you talking about something about, like... I think you saw something on on TV, and you became... But why did I ask you about going to the crossroads? Maybe because I'm from the South? Right. You know, you know what they call the devil down in the South, right? Legba. Yeah, Papa Legba. Oh, yeah, yeah. I put him in the rainbow song, Rainbow at the Crossroads. Did you ever go to the crossroads? I've been... I went to the crossroads... And I waited and waited and waited, and nobody ever came. I think if I went to the crossroads, somebody would come. The police? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. There's a strange man outside. There's a strange man at the crossroads. As always, Mr. Brown, it was a pleasure. Did you have a good time? It was fun. I'm going to go get some tacos now. Wow. Would you like to take us out? Stay strong. Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. Why do I always say it after you say it? I don't know. I'm not saying it. 
You say it again. Wait, say it again. Are we done? We're done, but say it again. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. And fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. I want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch the airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. They pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road However far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desires all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had